Word, I'd ask you to turn to Mark chapter 11. If you've been keeping up, we are skipping ahead to the triumphal entry passage that's in Mark. It's only a few passages before or from where I was previously preaching from. We'll go back to that after Easter and pick up on that. But um, this passage is kind of interesting. I've preached this, not this particular passage, but this event three times. I preached through John. We talked about it then. I preached through Zechariah, which is the prophecy that this event fulfills, and I talked about it then. But it's interesting. Every You could read the same event in four different books or five different books in the Bible, and it's going to communicate something different every time. It's the same meaning, but it's got a different application. And because of the way Mark records it, it emphasizes a little extra stuff. But all four Gospels record this event, Jesus riding a donkey or colt of a donkey into or toward Jerusalem. The three synoptics, they record how Jesus got the donkey in a little more details. John records the Gospel impact of uh, the event. Now, each record is a little different when you read it and compare them. It's a little different, but they never contradict each other. They either add to or they clarify some things. Um, and again, if, I, if four of you saw a traffic accident, you would probably tell me how it happened in four different ways. So uh, that's what happens in the, in the Bible, and that's why we have these perspectives, because God uses multiple perspectives. But Mark, he has presented Jesus, as we've walked through this book, he's presented Jesus as a prophet, as a teacher, as a miracle worker, but he's never really made it super clear that he's the Messiah. Mark is kind of one of those, in his gospel, he kind of keeps that under wraps until here, <laughs> when Jesus doesn't let him keep it under wraps anymore. Mark captures the subtle but deliberate way that Jesus fulfills a messianic prophecy that is held by all Jews. All the Jews believed this would happen. The Messiah would come this way. But they didn't quite understand exactly what it meant. Not all of them anyway. Follow along as I read Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. When they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and told them, Go into the village ahead of you. As soon as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone asks you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here right away. So they went. And they found a colt outside in the street, tied by a door. They untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing, untying the colt? They answered them, just as Jesus had said. So they let them go. They brought the donkey to Jesus and threw their clothes on it. And he sat on it. Many people spread their clothes on the road. And others spread leafy branches cut from the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. He went into Jerusalem and into the temple. After looking around at everything, since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Let's pray. Hosanna indeed, Father. Hosanna. Save us now. And you have provided that Savior. Talk to us this morning, Jesus, through your spirit about the king that we now serve, the king that we now know, who is the savior of the world. 
show us that it was time for you to make this announcement, this pronouncement, fulfill this prophecy, and it is also time now for us to serve you in that capacity. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. So Jesus approaches Jerusalem to reveal his messianic mission to the world. This event in, in that locale in that century was going to be known all over the world. Jesus executes a prophecy which begins a journey toward the atonement of humanity. That's what he's starting right here, the journey toward that. So how does Jesus fulfill this prophecy and change his ministry forever? Well, he marks three aspects, three aspects of this event and this moment to solidify his messiahship, to solidify who he is. And so the first thing he did is he gave directions. He gave instructions. Definite instructions were given. Point number one, verses one through three. I'm going to read those definite instructions for you again. When they approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and told them, go into the village ahead of you. As soon as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it and will send it back here right away. Pretty clear, right? Nothing to quibble about there. Remember, Jesus, he had been to Jerusalem before, so this isn't like his first time there. Matter of fact, he'd been coming there all of his life for the annual feasts that are required for a Jewish boy to attend or man to attend. But this time's going to be different. Now, it's coming up on Passover in this setting, and this time is going to be definitely different. Jesus, his followers, and a crowd have come from Jericho, and we're going to talk about that in a few weeks. But they come from Jericho where the blind man Bartimaeus had been healed. So this crowd is following Jesus, and he gets to these two little villages that are on the east slope of the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives is really not a mount. It's several mountains. It's several hills. We, we would call them hills because we have the Rockies. They're hills. They're about 2,600 feet. They, they tower above Jerusalem. They're a great place to look at Jerusalem and a great place. Usually you're, when you come from that way, you go in the east gate of the city, which leads you right up to the east entrance of the temple. So that's where they are. They're perched at these, this point. Jesus has uh, got his followers, his crowd, and he stops here because it's significance. One, the Mount of Olives is going to is, is plays in some end times prophecy if you read Zechariah chapter 14. But the cult that he's going to ride toward Jerusalem fulfills Zechariah chapter 9. So the, these two villages, the Beth, Bethphage, I know you'd want to pronounce that Bethphage, but that's English. It's Bethphage, which means house of figs, and Bethany, which means house of affliction. And Jesus started the process to fulfill this prophecy right here at these two villages. And he gives these disciples these very specific instructions. Go to the village ahead of you. I believe it was Bethany because that's where they came back to after this was over. That's where they would have to bring the donkey back to, the colt. So Jesus tells them exactly, get this colt. It is an unridden, no one's ever sat on this colt, this foal of a donkey. And we know it's a foal because others, the other uh, gospels tell us this. And Jesus says, bring it without asking. Just untie it and, 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 and take it. Now you're like, well, isn't that theft? <laughs> and Jesus isn't encouraging theft. He says, but if anyone asks, just say this, the Lord needs it. Now with Jesus, most of the time when he says if, it's probably going to take place. Okay, He's just giving you the, the chance to understand that. So 
He says, if they ask something. So Jesus tells them to promise that they'll bring the colt back. And that's why I believe it was Bethany where they went and got the colt. Jesus is very definite here. He's very deliberate. The instructions don't waver at all. There's no question. Just go do it. He's starting a fulfillment that will initiate an irreversible, irreversible revelation. Once he does this, no one will ever have to wonder if he's just a teacher or just a miracle worker or just a prophet. It will, it will unequivocally initiate an irreversible event, an irreversible revelation. Because Zechariah prophesied this in Zechariah chapter 9. And I'm not going to read that passage because we've read it several times in here. But this prophecy from God through Zechariah that the Messiah king would proceed to Jerusalem this way. A king, the king, is coming this way on the back of the foal of a donkey that has never been ridden. This will be noticed. No one will miss this, not even the Romans and not even the Jews that aren't necessarily following Jesus right now. Jesus knows that it will also be misunderstood by the Pharisees, by the crowds, even by his disciples. They will misunderstand it initially. They will not understand why he did this and why he didn't go on into Jerusalem and defeat the Romans and et cetera, et cetera. But Jesus has been here to this city at least 33 times probably. Maybe not quite that many, but he probably went every year. But this one would be for eternal purposes. This one is for eternal life. So he gave very definite, very specific instructions to these two disciples because Jesus knows it is time. It is time for me to make it, everyone aware that I am the Messiah, the King that Zechariah talked about. You know, most guys, when they put stuff together, they try to do it without the instruction manual. And, and, the, and the phrase always echoes in my head when all else fails, read the instructions. I know, I know, some of you are thinking, well, I... Some of them are worthless, and I go, I got you. But this is what's good about God's word. His, God, his word is never worthless. His word is great instruction, and it's instructions we should follow. They're never incomplete instructions. Follow them. That's what Jesus is telling these two disciples, and he's what he's telling us. God's word is very clear on the matters that regard salvation, the matters that regard how to live it out, and how to live that and our responsibilities for that, the Bible's very clear. It's not, it's not wavering at all. We can find out exactly how we're supposed to conduct our lives through his word. As a matter of fact, David writes about it in Psalms 119, 9 through 11. He asks the question, how can a young man keep his way pure? And he answers the question by living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart, David said. Do not let me stray from your commands. I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against God. Follow his instructions. Follow his instructions. What, what instructions this morning have you been ignoring? I know we've all got things that are probably plaguing us and things we think we maybe should do. Are there some in there that God's been telling you to do and you're ignoring them? Are you giving God and his word your full attention? I've had several conversations the last couple of weeks with people about reading the Bible and staying in touch with the Bible. And that's how you do it. Trials are going to happen. Tests of obedience are going to come for a Christian. But God always seeks to improve your faith, to improve your submission to him through those things. And one of the ways is knowing your Bible. Knowing your Bible. Knowing what God has said. I mean, what if these two disciples that went into this village just 
found a horse or a donkey, full-grown donkey that had been ridden on? What if they had just, well, you know, Jesus is he's, he's too specific. He's asking too much. There's no such thing as an unridden cult in this town. What if they had just went off on their own ideas? The prophecy would have been unfulfilled. And they wouldn't have been following Jesus' instructions, and I'm sure he would have got onto them about that. But following Jesus means attention to his word. It means obedience to his commands, like love your enemy, pray for those who persecute you, turn the other cheek. Those are pretty simple to follow. They're not easy, but they're clear. Tell others about Jesus. Offer hope to the hurting. Give of yourself to the needy. Be the grace of God to other people. Those are the things Jesus asked us to do. I know they're not easy. Sometimes it's hard. I know you're thinking, Pastor, you don't know who I work with. So I got you. But that's what we're supposed to do. Just like the disciples that went into this village, they were supposed to get that, that cult. And here's why. Jesus died for our sins. <laughs> it's that simple. Jesus died for our sins. He came to deliver us from death and the curse of sin, from hell. That's what he came to do. Why can't we? We should. We should live free from those sins by living for him following his instructions. And I promise you, if you do, it will change your life. It will change your life and it will be a good change. So Jesus gave specific instructions to these two disciples. He gave very explicit ones. And now we see their obedience of these instructions and what that tells us. The disciples' obedience was executed. Verses 4 through 7. Listen to what happens here. So they went and found a colt outside in the street, tied by a door. They untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? They answered them, Jesus, just as Jesus said, so they let them go. They brought the, brought the donkey to Jesus and threw their clothes on it, and he sat on it. Most likely they go to Bethany, like I said, and uh, they go in and they find it just as Jesus said. There's a surprise, not really. If you know who Jesus is, it's not a surprise at all. He wasn't, he wasn't guessing that there'd be a cult there. He knew there was going to be a cult in there. And the, the owners are actually with the donkey. Luke 19.33 tells us it was the owners that were standing there when they untied the donkey. It wasn't just some strangers on the street. It was the owner of the cult, and they told them exactly what Jesus said, and they released the donkey, the cult, I should say, for Jesus' use. But how did they know who the Lord is? I mean, Jesus told them specifically, say, the Lord needs it. The Lord has need of it in maybe the King James. Who do, how do they know who the Lord is? Well, let me tell you something. Everyone in Bethany who knew who Jesus was. You know why everyone knew who Jesus was in Bethany? Because he just raised Lazarus from the dead. Everybody knew Jesus. Everybody knew Jesus. That guy was dead for four days. Jesus raised him from the dead. John chapter 11, if you want to go read it sometime. So the scenario played out just like Jesus said. Like I said, when Jesus says if, it's probably going to happen. Um, and it's played out just like they said. They brought the colt to Jesus, and they made a saddle with their coats and clothes for Jesus to sit on. Now, they knew he was going to ride it because here's the thing. Jesus hadn't ridden a donkey anywhere. The last time he probably rode a donkey was when he was in his mother's womb, when she was riding a donkey maybe to Bethlehem. 
He hasn't ridden any time during his ministry. He's walked everywhere. So this is very unusual. But they, the disciples, knew there's only one reason why he would have this colt, and that's to ride it. It was time for this prophecy to be fulfilled. Now, why an unridden cult? Well, I've kind of explained that in the past time, but I'm going to explain it again. Here's the thing. Back then, because they didn't have cars and they didn't have limos and all that kind of stuff, a peaceful king would ride a donkey into a, a town. He, was, he would not come in some way that would make people think he's there to wage war. A warring conqueror king would ride a war horse. He'd be up, mounted high as he could be on a horse, and he would come in to put fear in everybody in that town. But humble kings ride the colt, the foal of a donkey. And Jesus did this to fulfill, like I said, Zechariah 9, 9 through 10. God spoke this prophecy to show the manner by which the revealed Messiah would approach Jerusalem. See, this method contrasted the Romans. I mean, the Romans, when they come in, man, they just come in with everything, chariots and fanfare and everybody's on a horse. There are no donkeys except carrying luggage, I'm sure, in the Romans. Alexander the Great entered Jerusalem on a horse, not a donkey, not a colt. He entered the Jerusalem on a horse. So when God sent his Messiah to his people, he wanted them to recognize it as something different and to follow him as someone different. These disciples obeyed Jesus' instructions without knowing what their actions would really initiate. They, they didn't get it when they did this. They just followed it because a king was coming. So they obeyed. There's a king that didn't obey in uh, the Old Testament. So here's a kind of a contrasting illustration. Israel asked for a king. God allowed it. Even though it was against God's word, God allowed it. And Saul soon became their king. King Saul, and he would defeat the Philistines, and he would deliver us from our enemies and our oppression. But soon, and I'm reading through 1 Samuel now, it's not long after he's coronated that he's quickly disobeying. I mean, it's just a matter of a chapter or two. And so his, he, Saul was a man after his own heart, not God's heart. He only cared about what he wanted to do, not God. And this resulted eventually in bondage to the Philistines again. So here's, here in, in 1 Samuel, let me read you a couple of verses about how Saul's disobedience led to his demise. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. So Samuel, then after that incident, he caught Saul again disobeying uh, God. And Saul made many excuses. He had all kinds of excuses planned out for why he broke God's command. And Samuel said, has the Lord, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. 1 Samuel 15, 22. So obey. <laughs> it rings in our ears like a four-letter word sometimes. Obey. Oh, we, we, we balk at it. We, we renege against it sometimes. We bristle at the word obey. We don't want to obey. We don't want to obey someone else. We want to negotiate a better deal. And it's 
It's just funny how we react to this. Why do we do this? Our sinful nature. Our sinful nature continues to war even after becoming a Christian. Your sinful nature is going to war against you obeying God. They want, it wants you to defy God. It wants you to live against God's rule. Because we desire to rule ourselves. That started the whole thing. Adam and Eve decided they wanted to be God. They wanted to make their own rules. The Satan, Satan helped convince them of that, but they chose that. We desire to rule ourselves. We desire to be our own God. And like Israel, who wanted to pick their own king, we want to pick who we follow instead of following the king of kings. We strain against God's way. We, we hear obey and we think, man, another thing I've got to do? But you know what? Grace makes all the difference. I don't have to do it to make myself right with God because I can't. Grace says, you're forgiven. You're a child of the, of the king. You're children of God. Now obey me. Not to earn heaven, but to make your life better here and store up treasures in heaven and to live according to the one who saved you. We get all, grace has made it possible. We get all, all kinds of chances. I mean, we talk about second chance. Listen, as a Christian, you know about second chances, but you also know about 2,000th chance, okay? You know about 3,000th chance. You get all these chances because God has said, I will save them. So why would we resist to follow such a glorious God who has graciously offered forgiveness through his son, Jesus Christ? Does the world really offer us a better choice? The answer is no. Because the truth is, we sometimes believe God's holding out on us. We do. We sometimes believe that God's holding out on us, something good. We, you know, and that's what Adam and Eve thought. So this fruit, if I eat this fruit, I become like God? God's been holding out on me. That's what Satan convinced them of. And we, we go on our merry way and decide we know better than God. We know better. We live for ourselves. We live for ourselves. We tip our hat to God and we say, thank you for the salvation. I'll take care of the rest myself. And then we wonder, <laughs> then we wonder why our life gets so messy, why our life gets so dysfunctional, why our life gets so self-destructive. I can tell you why. God is persecuting your heart to draw you back to him. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you're going through some tough times, sometimes it's because you're straight away. Sometimes it's because you're not obeying. Sometimes it's just to test you, and there's, that's a good thing too. So give up your own weighing and go with God's, which is to obey. Because it is time for us to obey. The disciples obeyed when they went and got this donkey. So when we take God's instructions and we obey his word to the letter, we will see God's way clear for our life. Divine results followed this. Divine results followed this event and these, their obedience and these instructions. Listen to verses 8 through 11. What happens there? So, Jesus is on the back of the unridden colt, and he begins to ride. And many people spread their clothes on the road, and others spread leafy branches cut from the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David! Hosanna in the highest heaven! He went into Jerusalem and into the temple. After looking around at everything, since it was already late... He went out to Bethany with the 12. <clears throat> so like I said, Jesus starts riding this coat, coat and something amazing happens. These people start throwing their coats down on the ground in front of Jesus and this colt. 
Many run to get palm fronds and branches and other vegetation to put on the ground, to cover the road in front of Jesus and this colt. Now we go, why? We don't understand that. Well, it's a tradition. And it started in 2 Kings 9, 12-13. When Jehu was declared king of Israel, they began to throw a coach down and he began to ride a donkey or something on top of it. And so it's carried on through the generations. They, they would observe it at the Feast of the Tabernacles. They would observe it, at, observe it at Passover. But it also became a tradition during the Jewish wars. That's the, the period between your, your Old Testament and your New Testament when they were revolting against the Greeks, when they were revolting against the Romans uh, and other conquering kingdoms. In 141 B.C., when they conquered and Simon Maccabeus rode back into Jerusalem, they threw branches on the ground and covered the, the road. When they rededicated the temple in 167 B.C., they did the same thing. And so it's a tradition. And so much so that it became kind of a national symbol to Israel. And it became such a national symbol that whenever palm branches were brought out and thrown on the ground and, and somebody walked on them with a donkey or their feet, it became like this amazing thing, very nationalistic. Israel is restored the Romans even put it on coins that they gave Israel to use when they were conquered because they gave them, it gave them a, a national identity which kept them at peace a little bit, that they felt like they still had their country. They really didn't. <laughs> that was the beauty of the Romans' method was they made you think you were still a sovereign nation, but you really weren't. You were run and owned by them. But why did the crowd do it here? Because Messiah fever had gotten them. Messiah fever. They, they were chomping at the bit for this. He's riding on an unridden colt of a donkey. Zechariah 9 pops into their heads. Messiah fever was bubbling up to the surface, but it was the wrong type of Messiah. They were looking for a Messiah to save them from Rome, not sin. They were looking for the wrong Messiah. But they saw this as an opportunity to rebel kind of in an obvious way against Rome without having to pick up a sword they thought, well, if we, if, we, if we honor this guy as the Messiah, as the king that's going to save Israel from Rome, we, we, we're rebelling, but we're not actually fighting. It didn't take, obviously. Um, it was to honor Jesus, too. I believe they, they really didn't know who they were honoring, but they were honoring Jesus for who they knew of him as. But the frenzy continued with a course from their ceremonial sent to, to the temple. Hosanna means God save us now or save us now. But they really meant this for another purpose. See, they, this was a battle cry that they had been crying out for centuries. Now they were looking for a king, not a savior. And then they sing Psalms 118.26, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then they tie it to the Davidic covenant where God, as we read in Psalms 89, and we're God told David, I will have one of your descendants on the throne forever. So they're tying it to that. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. They thought, it's happening. <laughs> they were getting excited. David has come back to re release us from the Romans. And so they add Hosanna in the highest to emphasize that God is saving them from Rome. <laughs> not sin. It's unfortunate. But Jesus knew the crowd would draw the wrong conclusion. He knew. 
He knew they would draw, he, they would draw the wrong conclusion. He also knew that the, the Pharisees and everybody else would draw the wrong conclusion. But he wasn't misleading the crowd intentionally. He was doing the, the letter of the law for the prophecy to be fulfilled. He was setting down a marker that when they look back at, which the disciples did, and we now do, we look back at, we see that marker that shows a prophetic fulfillment and sets in motion the events of the Passion Week that we're entering into now. The events of when Jesus came. Jesus knew once the Romans and Jews saw this event, he could never go back. Once the Romans and the Jews saw him riding this donkey and hearing the crowds talk about the Messiah and the King, he could never go back to being the itinerant preacher that wandered around in Galilee and healed people. He knew he was on a path to the cross. His future was set. See, Jesus didn't really enter Jerusalem because if he had actually entered Jerusalem on that donkey or that colt, Rome would have reacted in a violent way. They would have put down that insurrection immediately. So he, he stopped short of the gate of the city. And if he'd have walked through that gate then, he'd have fulfilled another prophecy that we get later in Revelation. So he knew where to stop. But the divine results were that Jesus was now irrevocably established in the human minds of that time as the Messiah to save people from their sins, even though they didn't understand that completely yet. So Jesus walked into the city. He examined the temple area, planned his next move, which would happen the next day, and he went back to Bethany, took the colt back to its owners, and he stayed with Martha and Mary and Lazarus, had a good time of fellowship, I'm sure. See, God had used this event and used Jesus right here. He had Jesus do this to establish him as the suffering servant, Messiah God had sent to the earth. That is the divine results. That's why he did this. There's no other reason. Now, sometimes divine results are not exactly what we expect. We're kind of like, well, that just seems kind of anticlimactic, doesn't it? But it fulfilled the prophecy, which lends validity and credibility to who Jesus is. I mean, just like Jesus being born in Bethlehem was the result of a Roman census that was executed, now a new king arrives on a donkey's colt. Just weird to us sometimes in our mind. But not to God. One day, one day in the future, it'll be time again for Jesus to come. And he will come back, but not on a donkey's colt. Revelation 19. Then I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True, and with justice he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a fiery flame, and many crowns were on his head. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of kings and Lord of lords. The next time Jesus comes, it'll be on a horse as a judge and a conqueror. So Jesus executed this prophecy right here deliberately. He set it in motion for one purpose, to set up his trial, his persecution, his crucifixion, his resurrection, his burial and his resurrection. He did it for that purpose. That's the ultimate results for this. That's the results God had planned for this. It wasn't a mistake. It wasn't a oops. It was the plan God had from the very beginning. So you and I can be forgiven of our sins. You and I can receive eternal life by the hand of Jesus Christ. 
So what results are you waiting for? Are you, are you expecting a better offer for eternal life than this? That you don't have to do anything but believe in Jesus Christ. There's not a better offer coming along, trust me. There is no other king coming to save you. And the world thinks that they may be their own king and going to save themselves. But Jesus has already done all that needed to be done. So we need to stop waiting for another philosophy, another revelation. We need to stop believing other ideas about life after this one. By the grace that changes us, we can have faith in Jesus' provisions for our forgiveness. By the King of Kings, we can have eternal life. That's what Jesus is saying by his fulfillment of this prophecy. Jesus is the only way to reach heaven. He's the only way to reach heaven in the next life. And that is firmly established by all the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. It is time for us to trust the King of Kings. King Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. Because the next time he enters Jerusalem, you won't be able to. It'll be too late. So Mark has shown us this morning Jesus revealing himself as the Messiah in the simple act of riding a colt. It, it sets in motion all the events that we know of from Good Friday to Easter. Actually, from the whole week. It sets in motion those events. You know, Israel sinned when they asked for a king. They really did. And even God said that, but he let them have one anyway. They chose a human king over God. We do that every day, don't we? When we choose to do our thing instead of God's, we're choosing a human king over God. They didn't see God as their king. They saw God as God. And they thought, he's holding out on us. Nope, they weren't obeying. But Jesus, he rode a colt on this day to establish God's king for all people. And it is time for us to start taking God so word, God's word seriously. He sent a new king. The one foretold in Psalm 89 that we read this morning. So this morning we need to ask ourselves, are you serving the king of kings? Or are you serving your own version of a king? What you think a king should do for you? Jesus calls us to see every week is holy week. He calls us to live our life like every day is Easter because we've been redeemed by the blood of the lamb. Our lives are different. Our sins are forgiven. So find a way to explain Easter to somebody this week. There's a lot of people out there that don't know what Easter is about or don't know what Easter is really about. It's not about bunnies and eggs. But let's take some time right now to pray for God to help us serve the king by obeying his will. Let's take a time of silent prayer. If you want to come to the front and pray, feel free to do that. After a few minutes, I'll close us out.